0: We know using two-star pitchers is always a good idea. Or is it? I'll ask Mike Gianella about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 23rd. It's show number 22 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have a two-part feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. In part one, we'll discuss whether two pitcher starts in a week really is better than one, and I'll ask him about paying minor celebrities to record podcast intros. Then later in part two, Mike and I will talk about how the conventional wisdom about saves isn't actually all that wise, and how fab budgeting is actually tougher than draft budgeting. And we'll have our weekly fantasy news update with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. We'll be looking at American League hitters including Wander Franco in Tampa, Yainer Diaz in Houston, and Alejandro Kirk in Toronto. And we'll look at American League pitchers Jorge Lopez and that Minnesota bullpen, and Kendall Graveman and the White Sox bullpen. Then it's over to the National League. We'll talk about hitters Jesus Sanchez and J.D. Davis, and National League pitchers Seth Lugo and Blake Snell in that whole San Diego rotation, and Alex Cobb and Kyle Harrison in the San Francisco rotation. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the guys at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at San Francisco left-hander Kyle Harrison. And in extra innings, I'll be talking about Matt Chapman's vanishing home runs. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Mike Gianella is in the house. we got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, part one of our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus and the Flags Fly Forever podcast. Mike, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Great to be back, Patrick, as always. How many drafts are you playing this year and how are your teams doing in general?
1: So I'm in eight leagues, um, six I'm running on my own, um, two with a co-manager. I'm doing very well in two I'm, and I'm mediocre in the other six. So I'm I'm first, second, and then I have a lot of like between fifth and seventh with one eighth place team. And and these are like twelve and fifteen team leagues. So I, I'm not completely bad at any of them, but for the most part it's it's except for those two leagues, it's been kind of a so so year.
0: Any common valuable hitters across multiple teams for you this year?
1: Um, multiple teams, I, I'd say no, uh, you know, just, I, I, when I saw your question on the pre-show, you know, Cunha jumped out as, as an obvious candidate, but I just have him in one league. Um, yeah, it's really weird. Like I, the success, the successful teams I've had don't really have a lot of overlap. So it's just been more how it's been pieced together. There hasn't really been a a hitter like that. That's done it for me in multiple leagues.
0: Is that the common in other years or have you had situations where you did have a hitter uh, or hitters across teams
1: i'd say it depends on the year what's really i think it's because of my approach i I tend to go with the balanced approach and that's what i did for the most part this season so like what what's wound up happening is on one team if the values went one way I, i have one set of hitters. In another league, if it went differently, I have a second set of hitters. Like, there's some overlap. Like, I have some Seiya Suzuki in a couple leagues, but I wouldn't exactly call him the key to my success, even though he's in the one league I mentioned where I'm doing really well. So, it's not random exactly. And I, I guess a weird a weird candidate for that would be um, Einar Diaz. He, he's for a catcher. Like at the price I got him at in both my leagues, he, he's a common thread.
0: And you need those kind of guys if you're going to succeed, right? I mean, everybody focuses in on how am I going to handle my first and second round guys? But, you know, it's that $1 guy at the end who gets you a $10 profit is as valuable or more valuable than a, than a first round guy who gets <laughs> what he should.
1: Yeah, by the way, you didn't catch us, but I, I, I do this brain freeze every once in a while with him. It's Elias Diaz. Einar Diaz was a catcher like 15 to 20 years ago. I, I have a weird thing when I see E. Diaz. I've been playing so long, that I, I sometimes transpose the two names. I did hear that,
0: and I thought I must have misheard it, so I was just going to let it slide, no, too, but good you, for you, you for correcting not. me. Yeah. Einar Diaz. Yeah. I had Einar Diaz on a few teams, and I don't remember him ever like, being very helpful.
1: I don't think he ever played for the Rockies either though. Like the, yeah. the park helps. And you know to get back to your point, like some of that is, is for sure context. Like when you take somebody like Diaz where you're like, well, you know, I I I wasn't expecting a lot from him, but I also figured, you know, given that park, given the context that he he could hit for a good average with a few homers and and that's what he did. And the other key with him too is I typically like to, in, in only leagues, take one good catcher and one $1 catcher. But the way the, the auction was shaking out, I was like, you know what? I, I can see where this is going. I'm going to put a little more money into my second catcher, and it really paid off. And I, I think that's another lesson, too, sometimes, is adjusting, particularly middle and late, and being like, well, this is what I normally do, but I, I need to do things a little bit differently here to you know, optimize my my team.
0: Any common valuable pitchers across your teams this year?
1: Marcus Stroman is the big one. Um, I have a couple, him in a couple leagues and, you know, he's, he's particularly his draft costs. Like he, he's been terrific. Like he just is really, you know, not a big strikeout pitcher, but when you're, you're getting outs the way he is and generating ground balls and a big story there too, is that the Cubs off, I mean, defense, I'm sorry, has been much better than than it's been. It's not quite back to it was when the team was elite, but Better than it's been since 2019, and, and it makes a difference. I, I feel like they did a good job building that defense around their staff, and, and vice versa.
0: Yeah, the last time I looked, I think Marcus Stroman's leading baseball, or at least leading the National League in innings, which is always a help, especially when they're good, solid innings like he's doing on the decimals.
1: Yeah, I, you know, he dominated the Rays in that one start, which is I, I think the one we all think about. But for the most part, he's he's just been really good and. He hasn't exactly flown under the radar because of the wins and the innings, but he, and I think even the ERA is up there. But he definitely isn't the pitcher. I think if you ask people for fantasy, who who's the number one or close to number one pitcher, I don't think anybody really would have you know be thinking Stroman. Even for people who do play, and, and I'm looking at it, he's number one in the NL in fantasy. I believe he's he was third um, heading into today behind uh, Shane McClanahan and Framber Valdez. So he's certainly up there.
0: So the top guy in the National League, I just looked two and his ERA's two something and his whip is barely over one. So yeah, he's having a hell of a year and sometimes you have to realize that it, you, you can succeed in baseball without being a high strikeout pitcher. And Marcus Stroman has proved that in the past as well. I wonder if he's going to be on Chicago by the end of the year. There's been rumors here in the Toronto area that uh, they're looking at bringing him back, which I, I don't remember, but I seem to recall that he left here under cloudy circumstances with a dispute with the team kind of thing. I don't remember, but uh, heaven knows uh, any team that has aspirations in the playoffs could do with a Marcus Stroman. That's
1: true. I mean, it's funny. I'm a Mets fan and he, he kind of left the Mets under similar circumstances where I think by the end, I don't want to quite say we're out as welcome, but when he left as a free agent, they were kind of like, yeah, I I think we're, I think we're good. Uh, But yeah, he's, he's performed. He seems to like Chicago. You know, the, the, the funny thing is looking at the central, you know, I know the reds are hot right now, but it, it looks like it's almost anybody's, you know, league. So it's, it's sort of, and the pirates are going in the wrong direction. The Cubs are going in the right direction. So you know, three or four weeks from now, that, that could flip where the Cubs might be like, no, you know, no thanks. We'll, we'll hang on and see if we can eke out the division and, you know, maybe talk about an extension.
0: Yeah, and there's also, if you have a decent little hot streak, there might be a wild card implication because they've expanded the playoffs so much. I was talking about this a week or two ago here on Baseball HQ Radio about how the expanded playoffs have really changed the trading environment in Major League Baseball, where teams are going to be a lot less willing to throw in the towel because it's not so obvious, especially at this stage of the season, that there's a towel that needs to be thrown in. You are in with a chance, even if you're not Doing especially well, you don't have to anymore. You're a little bit above five hundred, you could make a wild card game.
1: Yeah, or what might happen is what happened last year with the Orioles when they traded Jorge Lopez. Which is, you'll you'll see some teams in the middle that could go either way, selling, but selling in a modified way where they trade a couple of smaller pieces, but you know aren't don't go wholesale and say, yeah, you know what, we're selling the farm. And they go in that direction and say, sure, we'll we'll trade a couple of relievers, maybe a bench bat, but we're not gonna, you know, trade our best players because we still shot.
0: So far this year, have you made any free agent acquisitions that really panned out?
1: Probably the best one by far was Josh Lau early in Ale only in my home league. Uh, he he was actually out there, which sort of surprised me. I thought somebody would have, you know, thrown a buck or two on him, but they didn't. I didn't either, but I had a lot of outfielders frozen. I don't even remember who got hurt at this point, but he's obviously been instrumental i i know he's tailed off lately but it, so much power so much speed uh he he's somebody i i liked last year as as well uh and i took him late in tout wars mix and you know of course i i wound up cutting uh, josh lowe but yeah just just you know he's been a been a tremendous sport show you know, 18 steals 11 home runs coming into today um, at 270 or close to 280 average. Yeah, he, he's he been the hitter who jumps out as a free agent.
0: How about a free agent that you didn't get?
1: Probably the one I regret is, and this is in mix, was Francisco uh, Alvarez on on the Mets. Now, the, the funny thing about that, I you, you remember the, the kind of talk about him, particularly in leagues where he wasn't eligible at catcher, how yeah. uh, he'd have to build up that eligibility. It could take weeks. And I put a decent bit on him, but I wasn't particularly aggressive. And it's a league where I've cycled through my second catcher almost all year and haven't had a lot of luck. And you don't really want to waste too much fab on that. I almost wish I had you know, thrown 20 or 30 more bucks on Alvarez and stashed him and just kind of waited for him to, to produce.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, you have a really active Twitter account, uh, especially for people who like puns, which I do. And uh, before we start talking about uh, some of the sort of more substantial topics that have arisen on Twitter, uh, have you uh, succumbed to the temptation with Brian Wu getting called up by Seattle to use the pitching Woo pun?
1: No, I have not actually. Uh, I haven't really. I I sometimes think about you know WOOD and WAN if he wins a game, but beyond that, I haven't gone too far into thinking about it. I've I've curbed the puns a little bit, just just because after a while it it was just so frequent and so much. um, I had one today about the the Pirates catcher Henry Davis, but I've I've kind of backed off a little bit.
0: When I was working in a corporate environment, uh, in a big bank, uh, one Scott called into the boss's office for my semi-annual review or whatever. And, you know, he says, oh, you're doing really well. There's just one thing in the meetings. You're just cracking too many jokes. People don't think you take this stuff seriously, uh. <laughs> So, you know, okay, I'll cop to it. You know, in fact, I didn't take it all that seriously. So I, I didn't really mind. You said on Twitter that people were whining about Luis Array, which I heard is the correct pronunciation. Isn't that good. And you called them one of this year's worst versions of the fun police. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, I've seen people complaining about him and and complaining about the fact um, it's a rise, by the way, according to a baseball reference, which is is usually pretty accurate. And I think I've been overpronouncing the Z, two, so I'll, I'll have to keep that in mind. Uh, but people are complaining about him. They're saying he's not an MVP candidate. They're, they're saying he hits the ball too softly. He's going to come down to earth. And all, all that could be true. I think a hitter flirting with four hundred and toward the end of June is fun, and we should just enjoy it. And he's a great hitter for the type of hitter he is. Like it's that's really a lot of what it comes down to. I I, I don't know why. I think uh, Gray Albright of of Razzball also kind of touched upon this as well. You know, he he had a whole it's like you know somebody's flirting with what Ted Williams did what are people doing it's like of course they're complaining and and that that, that's a large part of it It, it's it comes down to just enjoy the fun thing that this player's doing I don't know about you do you you enjoy it I I certainly have enjoyed watching you know him and his five hit games and you know every day when he hits he just seems to be like on a roll
0: I really enjoy watching him play because he's Really, an, an old throwback kind of guy. He's poking it up the wrong, the, to the opposite field. He's slashing at it like a cricket batsman, more more than like a a, a major league baseball hitter. And he's doing it with a one percent barrel rate. I think he's in the, the lowest the lowest percentile of batters in Statcast. And I think that's great. And uh, I I do enjoy when he has a five hit game and everybody immediately floods the the internets with all kinds of complaints about this guy's not barreling the ball up and he's still hitting 400. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it's fake or phony or anything like that. It means he's figured out a way to succeed that's out of line with how most people succeed. And I think that's wonderful for the game. And especially if it allows a few other players to maybe stop trying to barrel barrel up balls that they can't or, or to adjust their approaches to try n- not so much to hit home runs, but to get on base. Uh, the guy who I just wrote about for baseballhq.com is Jorge Mateo, who had a really good uh, month of April and then May stank. And I've looked into why, and he was just trying to swing hard in May when he was just trying to kind of poke the ball around in April, and I think Jorge Mateo would be well advised to stop doing what he's doing and start emulating Luis Arise because it's clearly working for him.
1: Yeah, and I, I think unlike unlike Arise, Mateo has some natural power. Like he maybe not like you know twenty to thirty home run power, but he has some strength where he could even if he's just trying to do what you're describing. Hit a few balls over the fence, yeah. Whereas Arise, it, it, it is just amazing. And uh, Robert Orr at Baseball Perspectives early this month had a great article, you know, if your listeners want to look for it, it's titled Luis Arise Unicorn. And it talks about the fact that he his skill set is unique or close to unique unique. And he's excellent at maximizing it. And and that's really what it comes down to is, is he does a great job of maximizing the ball his ball placement. I mean, there's some other hitters who do it too. Um, Robert mentioned Stephen Kwan and, and Jeff McNeil, but Arise has just been masterful at it this year. I, I do believe he'll come down to earth just because you know the laws of probability. Like I I guess he's going to finish with like, you know, a 340, 350 average or something like that, but that's still great.
0: In this day and age, it's really, really great. Uh, If you compared it to the league norms, he's probably ahead of where guys like, well, George Brett hit, what, 380 or something a few years ago, a lot of years ago. And John Olerud, I think, was flirting with 400 late in the season and hit 360 or something like that. But those were in the times when 260 was a pretty average average and now it's 220 or whatever. So Arise hitting 180 points above the league is actually really super interesting to me. And I saw a tweet the other day from a guy who says, yeah, he's hitting 400, but he's only got 30 RBIs. (laughs) And you think, well, put him on Tampa, you know, put him on a team that's putting base runners on. You know what? I I looked it up. You know what uh, Luis Arise OPS is with runners in scoring position? Take a guess. I don't. Ten sixty
1: I would have probably guessed nine fifty I would have guessed around his regular like o p s so he's even exceeding right. so he's being kind of clutch, but it doesn't matter because the team around him and i, I think somebody he's leading off and it's almost tip you kind of almost wonder if he should be batting maybe second or third because yes, you're getting the maximizing him leading off you know in terms of getting on base, but if you in terms of driving and runs, if you batted second, maybe there'd be somebody in front of him who was a better hitter.
0: Perhaps, yeah. You tweet and retweet a lot about Rob Manfred, the owner's errand boy, uh, calls himself the commissioner. What's your take on the whole A's to Vegas story?
1: I think it's kind of sad. You know, the A's have Oakland has a strong, loyal fan base. I think, Understandably, particularly the last couple of years, they don't want to see a team that's like a 50-60 win team, particularly a team where the teardown was done deliberately by ownership. This isn't just a matter of a team suddenly getting bad. Um, it's generally frustrating because teams are going to be profitable, you know, or this team's going to be profitable whether in Las Vegas or not, and it just feels like a money grab. This isn't anything against Las Vegas, by the way. If, if they want an expansion team, I think that's great. Major League Baseball is probably overdue to expand by a couple teams, but it's just really going to stink for the fans in Oakland. And, and, and that reverse protest they did where people showed up, they, they, they displayed that clearly they have the ability to show up when there's a reason for them to do so.
0: And I've been reading that the move to Las Vegas doesn't seem quite as locked in as a money generation, as a revenue generation, as just staying in Oakland would have if they got the same kind of stadium deal that they ended up getting from Nevada and from the the city of Las Vegas. Had they put that kind of money into Oakland, Oakland's like the fourth wealthiest city in, in the United States. My wife told me the other night she was looking at some kind of story and you know, there's a, there's a lot of money there. There's a lot of people there and Las Vegas, I don't know. Jeez, Mike, it's, it's a big city and it does a lot of tourism, but I can't see people f- coming to Las Vegas just so they can watch the A's. They're coming there for other reasons and they might take in a game,
1: Yeah, but
0: probably not.
1: I, I suspect that the reason for, for the, mo- I suspect the money is going to come from the initial deal that gets, or they're hoping it gets made with the initial deal with the city and some incentives they get. That's often where teams make the money or try to make the money on something like this is upfront Uh, ticket sales in general are not nearly the generator of revenue that they were a a couple generations ago. And that that's part of it too. Uh, I think the last time I looked, there was a time where, you know, tickets 10 or 15 years ago were about 30% of a team's revenue. That's down to like 20. It might be a little bit lower. So that that's all part of it and some of this is like beyond my the scope of my expertise but it just does seem to me that that's what they're looking to do they're looking for a short term payoff i don't think they care so much about the long term of whether they draw fans or not to that that place
0: but they also have to draw a tv audience and i suspect that maybe they think oakland fans will continue to be fans now that the team has moved i don't know what the experience was with the raiders who moved to las vegas the nfl club but I do know that the revenue from TV is shrinking. There's a couple of teams now uh, out there whose regional sports networks have basically just said, you can have the rights back. We don't want them because they went bankrupt. And uh, I think that that whole environment is shifting in a way that we don't quite understand yet. But with the cable cutting or cord cutting and people not using those packages anymore the way that they used to, I think Major League Baseball is in for a real... Um, inflection point in how it gathers people to watch the games under what circumstances, using what technology, and most importantly for them, how that the, all of that adds up to generating money from
1: them. Yeah, I, I, I think that there are a lot of moving parts and, and factors at, at work. And you know, something I can't help wondering is if they move to Las Vegas, if it allows them to, to reset on a TV deal and make a new deal. Like, I don't know, but that, that's something that could be playing a part in this as well.
0: I saw that the Flags Fly Forever podcast is coming out uh, again. This week's show was pretty funny. You guys were talking about paying players to record show intros, and uh, that's some kind of website, cameos.com, I think it was called. Where'd you guys get the idea to talk about that?
1: So we we uh, did kind of a free-floating show in general. We usually have a, an intro, and it's more about fantasy baseball. Uh, my, my partner, John Hagelin, he, he hijacked... The intro to the show. And then Samuel Hale, our our producer, suggested, you know, getting someone to do a cameo, which yes, it's cameo.com, like someone famous to do the intro. So then John mentioned that his brother got him a cheap cameo for his birthday. And that was the beginning of us going to the website and just going through players and you know being fascinated by all the different baseball players and personalities who who are on there.
0: So which players seemed to be the best values when you guys were talking about this?
1: There didn't seem to be any great values, but I just noticed there were a lot of disparities. Like, you know, for for example, Ozzy Guillen, who's very colorful and, and interesting, uh, he was $50. And, you know, for somebody like to get Guillen, for example, to do an intro would be great. And maybe just because I'm old, but like Ted Simmons for $50 seemed like a pretty good deal, too. Um, I mean, there were some other, other great players on there like Reggie Jackson who – i forget what he was exactly but he wasn't that expensive i think raleigh fingers was a little bit over 100 i thought for these all timers i know they're older but it would just be great to have them for, for that amount of money to get a few people to pitch in
0: Particularly if you were doing a podcast aimed at that, at that fan base, the, the team's fan base. I, saw, I went and looked at it too. There's a few guys on there that were in the $500 to $1,000 range. I think Roger Clemens wants 1000 bucks or something like that. Pete Rose, I think, was three or $400. Pete never missed a chance to make a, a dollar out of anything.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, there, there's definitely some people that are, are pretty high, like way high up on there. Although I, I given their name recognition, I, I kind of get it. Like the the ones who I would really jumped down at me is expensive for who they are. And I mean, this is nothing against them as people, but, you know, JT Snow was $200. Um, that's the same price as Greg Maddox. I, I know between the two, who I'd rather have at that price. And then active player, but Mauricio Debon was $300. <laughs> Uh, that that seems like a lot of money for, for Mauricio Dubon, again, who seems like a a great person, but I don't know if I'd pay that for him to do a cameo for me.
0: When I saw some of those prices, my first thought was this guy doesn't actually want to do this. (laughs) You know, the, the amount that he gets has to overcome, not only just the value proposition, but it also has to compensate him for the fact that he finds the whole thing stupid and a grind. Uh, You know, a lot of these guys just seem to be charging way more than the market should be asking. And I thought maybe that might be the reason.
1: Yeah, there they, I mean there very well could be something to that idea where, you know, somebody's like, Hey, we, we want you to do this thing, you know, maybe his agent said it was a good idea and he said, Okay, I'll do it if you give me this ridiculous amount of money and the agents, you know, put it up there, and then nobody does it. Or if you know they have to do it once or twice, they're they're like whatever. I I, I kind of get it. The the concept to me seems like a bit of a, a pain, like if I were even quasi famous to be like, I gotta record this thing. It probably depends on your personality if you like it or not.
0: Yeah, there was a guy, uh, um, Jerry Howarth. He used to be the play-by-play guy on the Jays radio broadcasts, and he got he got so many requests from fans who would come up with their phones and say, "Can you record my outgoing message?" And he'd say, "Oh, all right, you know," and and it was, uh, "Hi everybody," or "Hi listener," this is Jerry Howarth from the Toronto Blue Jays, and. So-and-so's can't come to the phone. There she goes, which was his home run call and leave a message at the tone and we'll get back to you, you know? And so many people were coming up to him in restaurants, on the street, around the stadium, wherever they saw him, that he finally just put out an announcement saying, I'm not doing this anymore for any reason. And then a couple of years later, he actually did do it. He, he gave his uh, voice on an outgoing message as a prize in the Jays. A charity lottery kind of thing, but yeah, it must be kind of a okay. hassle after a while.
1: I, I, you know, it's like a lot of those things. Like the the modern world, as my mom puts it, it, it it gives you more access and it gives people more avenues to make money and you know put your face out there, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or, or whatever you know other TikTok. But but it also seems kind of exhausting. Like it seems like you're if you're a celebrity, you're always always on or always have to be on.
0: And that could get super tiresome, super fast. I mean, I was never a celebrity of the sort that we're talking about, but when I was a newspaper man in, uh, I lived in Regina, Saskatchewan, I was a newspaper columnist and they, they put my name on the side of, and my photo on the side of buses and billboards and stuff like that. And that creates a kind of notoriety that's, it's fairly localized, but you know, at first it's kind of neat, but then you're, you know, you're walking along in your shorts and sandals in Safeway, trying to find a, a loaf of grain bread. And somebody comes up to you and says, how come you think Martin Scorsese is such an excellent director? You know, Man, I do not want to have this conversation yeah. with you under any circumstances, but least of all in this circumstance.
1: Yeah, I, I, I've always, you know, on the rare occasion I've seen somebody out to dinner, I, I will leave them alone. And, you know, it just, to me, it seems like common sense, but you see somebody, you know, I think it was Bill Parcell's once years ago. I was in a restaurant and he was there and I saw people coming up to him and you could see the the look on his face. I mean he was trying to be polite, he was trying to be nice, but I think he had that vibe of like, yeah, I'm just trying to have dinner with my wife. Like I, I don't really want like in this moment to be you know, have dozens of people or you know, ten people coming up to me and you know, talking to me about, about the Giants. I think he's with the Giants back then.
0: Yeah, a friend of mine saw Cowboy Joe West, the umpire, in a restaurant in Manhattan one time and he kind of sidled up to him because he was by himself he wasn't with his wife or anybody else and said hey Mr. West you know I'm a big fan he the guy himself had been an umpire and so he said Could I get your autograph and Joe West says pull up a chair <laughs> and the next thing you know he's sitting there having dinner with Joe West and Joe West paid for the whole thing and they're eating steak and drinking good liquor you know it was a if you're ever gonna if you're ever gonna try somebody at a restaurant start with Joe West.
1: I was at Foley's this this was not during tout time but this was like a different time of year I was at Foley's in New York the the bar where we used to go for for tout wars and you know on one of the evenings and a friend of mine we we saw Jim Joyce who you know he's infamous for the Armando Galarraga near perfect game yeah and you know my my friend said hi to Joyce and I actually brought it up to him politely and Jim Joyce talked to him about it. It was very nice about. it. He's like, yeah, you know, I, I blew that call. You know, I, it, it's on me. You know, and and again, my friend was very deferential, which I think was the key. Um, but yeah, sometimes you never know. Sometimes you'll you'll be able to talk to a, someone like that, and they're they're willing to do it.
0: Again, getting back to my own minor celebrity in 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 Regina. A lot of times people would come up and ask a question about a movie review or a band review or something that I'd done and they were pretty nice about it and seemed like they were sincere about asking, not just trying to troll me. And yeah, you end up standing there for 10 minutes having a conversation. Well, What's the harm? I always thought uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, having a voluntary conversation with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, uh, how long have you been writing at Baseball Prospectus?
2: It's,
1: it's been 10 years now. It was 10 years at the beginning of 20, 2013 is the beginning for me. So it's been a little bit over 10 years.
0: And this week you had an article looking at the truism that the 2 star pitcher generally has an advantage over a one-start pitcher because yes, there's potential harm to ratios if it's a bad 2 star pitcher, but that's outweighed by the advantage in strikeouts and the possibility of a win. Before we get into the details, what prompted you to take on this particular bit of common knowledge?
1: Well, the last couple of years, I've been intrigued by the idea of of two-star versus one-star pitchers. I've heard a lot of people on their their podcasts, and I've seen advice geared toward it and talking about how it's frequently the best way to go. Uh, And this year is the first time I've really had time to dig in and and do some research and and pull some data for it. So I decided to write about it, given I had
0: that time. How did you organize the study?
1: Well, there were different things I could have looked at. Um, I I was going to look at Tout Wars, but in the end, I decided to look at NFPC in the main event because there's 53 leagues. I felt like that was a pretty good quantity of leagues. Uh, So I looked at the two start free agents who were added in five or more leagues in in a week uh, for the first 10 weeks of the season because that was around the time I I wrote the article. Um, Five was a good number because it meant that, you know, five of these very sharp fantasy managers thought these starters were worth adding. Um, I also removed starters who were slated to uh, start twice, but then wound up starting once or maybe option minors are hurt because, yes, that can happen, but that's not really what I was studying.
0: The first result that you mentioned said, uh, at first glance, two start plays that we're making are a drop in the bucket and we're spending a lot of time obsessing over very little. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, as a percentage of overall stats, both league-wide and even on our fantasy teams, two-star pitchers, even with the volume they get, aren't accruing as much as I, I think we believe. Yes, it, it's better than a one-star pitcher, but overall compared to the league, it's, it's a smallish percentage of, of what our stats are. So we, we kind of obsess, we kind of look at it, but like for the pitchers we're picking up, particularly in deeper leagues, they're, they're not really making that much of a dent in our overall
0: stats. You then went on to note that comparing two start streamers to all starting pitchers is potentially actually misleading. How so?
1: Well, a lot of times when we look at these two start pitchers, particularly when we talk about free agents, you know, we're looking at how the team is a team is doing overall, but we're not looking to replace the average pitcher on our staff, say like our SP four or even our SP five. We're looking to replace either the the worst pitcher or, you know, somebody maybe has a bad matchup or even a reliever. So, you know, instead of looking at the average pitcher on a fantasy staff, I, I decided to compare whether or not the two-star free agent was better than the replacement level pitcher in a 15-team league.
0: How did you address that issue?
1: So what I did there is I, I took my my formulas from last year Um, which I publish every year at the end of the season. And then I kind of shaved them off. I changed them a little bit because pitching hasn't been quite as good this year. So I upped the ERAs a little bit, I upped the whip a little bit. Um, I kept the same wins denominator. I tweaked the strikeouts a little bit because they're, I think, slightly down from where they were last year. And, And that was how I came up with the replacement level pitcher. So that's kind of tricky too, because replacement level typically measures the whole season, uh, so what I wound up doing is I kind of came up with, I think it was about 26 or 27 cents um, for like what the pitcher was worth at any given week. And and that over the course of 26 weeks comes out to about replacement level for a pitcher.
0: So you looked at whether being aggressive in starting these two-start streamer guys is actually good tactics. What did you find out?
1: I've been very conservative the last couple seasons. And what I found out is I think my approach has been too conservative but on the other end, the approach of simply adding two-star pitchers like in almost every occasion with the exception of, say, a Colorado Rocky at home or, or an awful pitcher or maybe an Oakland A uh, is too aggressive. The, the, the right approach is probably somewhere in the middle. You do need to take some risks, but you don't want to simply take a risk just because someone's a two-star pitcher.
0: And you said that Although being conservative is probably the right percentage play as you described, there is a middle ground of scenarios that suggest why being too conservative might not be optimal. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, a lot of it's about context. So when we write about fantasy or talk about it, we're often talking in a vacuum. We're not looking at team context. We're not looking at league context. So in that vacuum, maybe you should play it safe. But if you have a team that's strong on ERA and WHIP, and if you have some overperformers, It's probably okay to take a risk here or there to try to get some strikeouts. Um, And while taking zeros might be better than, you know, getting a bad starting pitcher, those zeros are still not good. So, like, if you're like, well, you know, my two-star pitcher's bad or, or below average, I don't want to roster him, those zeros are still not an optimal outcome. So you might need to take a chance on a starter, even one who doesn't look great, but just looks kind of average in order to win.
0: Well, Mike, it was a really interesting article. Your articles are always really interesting. We'll talk more about them in the second half, but let's take a break for the news. Uh, Can you come back in a few minutes for part two? I sure can. Mike Gianella writes for Baseball Prospectus, and he'll be back later in the show to talk about how the conventional wisdom about saves isn't actually very wise, and how fab budgeting is actually tougher than draft budgeting. He'll also have some boons and banes for this weekend's fab runs. Coming up next, we have our Market Watch Player News reports with Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In playing time tomorrow roster forecasting, analyst Jock Thompson reviews the five teams in the American League West, including a new look infield in Los Angeles and rotation woes in Oakland and Texas. And Dan Marcus has the scoop on the National League West, including the Arizona outfield, newcomers establishing themselves in San Francisco, and the closer situation in L.A. Playing time tomorrow, roster forecasting is just another great resource at BaseballHQ.com.
1: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly news review and update, and here with the latest is Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
3: Happy Friday, PD.
0: Always a happy Friday. The strange story of the week, however, maybe not so happy for Wander Franco of Tampa. Manager Kevin Cash has benched the breakout shortstop star basically for being petulant. What's going on here? Kids being kids,
3: I I'm not hundred percent sure what's going on here. Cash said that Franco would be held out. Uh, He was out of Thursday night's game and he'll be out tonight, uh, Friday night as well. Uh, Sure enough, it was Taylor walls at shortstop last night. Cash, they asked cash kind of, Hey, what's up? And he said it was disciplinary action to help Franco. The quote, I've got it here, deal with the challenges of being a major league player and some of the frustrations that come with it. Uh, He didn't, cite any specific incidents. I don't think there have been any reports of outward behavior like Franco not running out grounders, uh, base running fielding lapses, anything like that. <clears throat> um, I recall, you know, the contra- mini controversy early in the season of when he sort of did a, uh, you know, flip to himself on a ground ball, but that didn't seem, you know, that's not recent and didn't really seem like it warranted this kind of thing uh, reminded of the basket catch in the movie major league where the, ma- the manager says, nice catch. Don't ever do it again. <laughs> but uh, it was a good play. It was a good play. Uh, I, but I, I don't know what to make of this one. Um, I think he threw his bat after striking out one day last week. And right. then he, you know, there was a time there was I uh, I don't know if it was the same game when he didn't want to talk to reporters in the clubhouse after the game, but I mean, a two game suspension for your star for that kind of stuff. That all sounds more, kangaroo court to me. So I I don't really know.
0: Well, Cash also said there's been multiple times that the way he has handled his frustrations have not been the way that we ask our players to uphold being the best teammate. And I wondered then if there's something going on in the locker room where somebody's, you know, gotten his face about some of this stuff. He has in fact been accused of not running out grounders if he's had a bad game. He has had some base running and fielding lapses. So I wonder if there's something going on behind the scenes that we're not privy to, but that is really at the core of this problem, that he's upsetting the, the clubhouse, not just being an idiot in front of all the fans, which is bad enough.
2: Yeah,
3: being an idiot with the fans and or the media is one thing, but you're, you're 100% right that if Cash is provoked to take an action like this, it kind of has to be in support of the rest of the team and not in support of, you know, the beat writers. Cause yeah, that's not, that's not how these things work.
0: Yeah. I don't think there are beat writers anymore. Yeah. Well, that's beat another it. good point. Yeah. <laughs> Just one guy. Uh, uh, hey, cash, you know, this guy's giving me a hard time. Well, I beat it. You know, it would, would be the basic response. So how seriously should we as fantasy managers take this kind of news? What happens if Franco doesn't clean up his act? How do we respond?
3: I'm sort of of the overall mindset that I don't know what to do with this. So I'm going to act like it's not a problem until it's a problem. And I mean, I guess the best case scenario here is that Franco sits down for two days and, you know, gets the message that's being sent to him, whatever that is. Hopefully cash was fairly more clear with Franco himself about what, you know, he's doing wrong and what the expectations are than the non explanation that the media got. I assume Franco was told, you know, what he needs to knock off, essentially, right? Um, But, I mean, Franco's young and Franco's got a monster contract with a team that doesn't give out monster contracts. So, um, on the one hand, I would think that these two parties are stuck with each other, and they're going to figure out a way to make it work. On the other hand, if uh, the Rays started calling around to other teams looking to unload Franco, and even with his uh, nine-digit contract, I think there would be a lot of people who would be happy to have that conversation with them. So, uh, you know, we're a long way from those kind of things happening, but uh, you know, certainly in season, if you're uh, if you've got if you've got Franco rostered, I don't think you really do anything with this, and if it becomes a dynasty concern, like if you're in an AL only league and now you're suddenly worried he's not going to be in the AL forever, like you were counting on, I guess those are the kind of things we start, you know, keeping in the back of our minds, but I I don't, I don't see any immediate action required here.
0: A few weeks ago, you mentioned Yiner Diaz as a player to watch in Houston. And at the time he was still in the minors but Jock Thompson's playing time tomorrow coverage of the AL West mentioned Diaz as a possible shot in the arm for what was then a pretty anemic Astros offense. So fast forward to now, and you wrote in playing time today that Diaz is in fact making his place in the lineup ever more solid. What's the update there?
3: Yeah, there have been a lot of at-bats available in Houston this year relative to years past with, you know, you can go through most recently, the Jordan Alvarez injury, but obviously Michael Brantley hasn't been there all year. Altuve missed, you know, a couple of months to start the year. There, you know, there's been, you know, sort of the core of that lineup has been diminished, and there have been a lot of um, Corey Jolks, Chas McCormick, Jake Myers, Mauricio Dubon, all picking up at bats. And lately, with the Alvarez injury, it's been Yair Diaz's turn because you know the core of the lineup, you know, needed a boost, and Diaz is sort of a bat first. Without a prospect, without a clear position, um, kind of prospect. But the uh, you know with Alvarez out, there was opportunity to let his bat do its thing, and that's exactly what's happening. Uh, over the last month, Diaz is hitting 310 with uh, you know not much of an OPS. I think he's what OBP, excuse me, not much of an OBP. He's hitting 310 with a 314 OBP, so I, that must be one walk. Uh, but a 647 slug, that's six home runs and a, a near one thousand. OPS. So that's exactly the shot in the arm that this Astro lineup needed with the aforementioned guys out and Jose Abreu mostly not producing. So the question becomes, if Diaz keeps hitting like this, he kind of has to play, right?
0: Well, let me stop and ask you a question. Uh, Does Diaz continue to find regular at-bats when Alvarez gets back to the lineup?
3: You know, I, I think a 961 OPS rises to the level of we have to find him a place to play. The question becomes where? And when Alvarez comes back, the probably the easiest thing to do is have Alvarez jump to the outfield. Uh, he can you know, he's been playing left field about half and half in a split between left field and DH. Um, so if he comes back from his injury is an oblique, so it's not a leg injury. So in theory, when he comes back, going back to left field even more a little more than half the time is probably reasonable to go die, to let Diaz have the dh spot because Diaz has no appreciable outfield experience himself so they can't do it the other way around Diaz could go to first base if Jose Abreu continues to be as much of a liability there as he is although his bat has woken up a little bit this month so maybe given the signs of life there that's not a move they want to make quite quickly but there's uh you know, they have. If Diaz continues to hit like this, they're going to have to leave him in the lineup one way or the other.
0: So I got two questions. How do the Astros feel about playing Alvarez in the outfield? And if they're comfortable with that idea, then who loses the playing time when Alvarez returns? If we assume that he goes out there, that uh, Diaz takes over as the DH, that's too many players for not enough chairs.
3: It is. Last year, going back to Alvarez he played 56 games in left field as opposed to 77 at dh this year it's 22 and 35 so th- you know d- doing the math on that and ratios they're willing to put him out there when he's healthy it looks like three times a week two games out of five three you know three games out of seven something like that um and i think that's got more to do with his health and his legs of course he's had so many um injury-type problems with the lower body in the last couple of years. It's got more to do, I think, with his, with his legs than with the fielding concerns. I think they'll deal with you know him being a, a below-average left fielder out there, but it's a question of not wanting to wear him down or get him broken again or anything like that. So I don't think you're going to see Alvarez out there every day, but I think they could probably tweak this, tweak this mix a little bit to lean on Alvarez in the outfield a little bit more. Um, and if that happens, then the, you know, the trickle down effect is the playing time loser is Corey Jolks, who among that outfield of Jolks and Chas McCormick and Jake Myers, um, who have been handling left field and center field, it's really Jolks has been handling left field, Myers and McCormick are the only two who have appeared in center and of course, Kyle Tucker is a fixture in right. So uh, if left field goes to Alvarez, it's Jolks who ends up losing the playing time. And, you know, he hasn't been as hot as Diaz, but he's also been filling up the stat sheet a little bit, showing a power speed plan. So um, if he does hang on to left field at bats, and you can sort of think of this as a Jolks versus Diaz competition uh, for playing time when Alvarez comes back, it's advantage Diaz right now. But, um, You know, jokes is still has probably a couple of weeks to make a claim here before Alvarez comes back.
0: And just if you're keeping track at home, I read recently the timetable for Alvarez coming back is around the end of this month, maybe is sneaking a bit into July. One of the most useful of many useful resources at the Baseball HQ site is the Big Hurt column, our player injuries coverage, which is shared by Matt Cedarholm and Dr. Jim Ferretti. And among the injured players reviewed this week was Toronto catcher Alejandro Kirk.
3: Yeah, so Kirk got a a serious cut on his left hand when he was hit by a John Gray pitch. Um, And, you know, without body shaming, I think I'll go, and uh, I'm safe in saying that if you're Alejandro Kirk and getting hit by a pitch, the hand is the one place you did not want that to happen, right? (laughs) But at the moment, um, you know, the x-ray said no fracture in the hand, but bad bruise as well as, you know, this pretty significant cut that requires some stitches. So uh, we expect the cuts probably... uh, 10-day thing to get that uh, closed up to the point where he could get back to um, not worrying about that reopening. But uh, it's the bruising that might last a little bit longer than that. This uh, obviously, you know, getting hit in the finger or hand area is, you know, um, not a well padded area. So the concern is a bone bruise that might linger, may not have even been able to be diagnosed yet because of all the swelling On the initial x-rays so that could linger a little bit longer and then of course it's the catching hand so unless the jays are going to run you know jamie moyer and his 65 mile an hour junk ball out there you know the hand has to be healed enough to handle major league fastballs which is wow it's probably just a pain tolerance thing that's likely not insignificant either so net this all out and uh Max Cedar Holmes worry-a-meter put this a two on the five, one to five meter scale. So we're not terribly worried, but this is not just a 10 days and you're back and you're fine kind of thing either.
0: What I can't understand, Ray, is why somebody hasn't developed something like hockey gloves for batters to wear in the major leagues or in baseball at, er- at all levels, I suppose. Because pitchers are going inside more. The players have all kinds of body armor all over the place. And yet the one thing they leave uncovered is the most vulnerable part of the whole thing, which is the small bones in their wrists and hands and fingers. And I don't understand why they don't get real padded gloves. I see a few guys wearing sort of padded gloves, but I don't see why they haven't got hockey gloves or the gloves that cricket players wear, which would provide a lot more protection without reducing any of the, the, uh, swing plane kind of adjustments you have to make with your hands and wrists. Uh, I don't understand why they don't do that.
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And I, the only answer I can think of would be that the players must say they don't want that because like, you know, the, all the examples you give boxing, cricket, hockey, etc. cetera, the one that came to mind for me is lacrosse, just because when my girls were playing lacrosse, like even like at the elementary school level, they all have these gloves that you'll know, have no padding on you know, the, the palm fingertip side, but there's padding on the back because, you know, sticks get crossed and you get, you know, essentially slashed across the hands. Right. And, you know, that even a little padding on the, you know, the backs of the fingers helps a lot there to to mitigate that. And why doesn't the same thing apply to baseball bats? I, I don't have an answer, but it's a great
0: question. Who gets the playing time if Kirk is on the shelf for any length of time?
3: So the call up was Tyler Heinemann uh, from AAA who slides into the backup job for presumably the length of Kirk's IL stint. Wouldn't expect a lot of playing time there. Heinemann's a career 214 hitter with a singular home run and 12 RBIs and 92 career games. Danny Jansen, of course, is the other catcher on the roster who now, you know, probably had the lead in a, uh, you know, nominal job share with Kirk and now will become sort of more of a primary catcher. I would imagine, you rather than see him getting a little more than half the playing time for the next couple of weeks, you'll see him get three quarters of the playing time or something along those lines until, uh, until Kirk is ready to get behind the plate again.
0: Any chance uh, Dalton Varsho puts on the tools of ignorance and slides back there? They've got a lot of outfielders and he has some experience. I don't think he's a good catcher. But he's, he can hit, and he he can catch after a fashion. Any chance we see that?
3: I mean, I suppose in, a, in an in-game scenario, that's probably most likely. Um, I, you're up there closer to it than I do, but I don't think that's happened at all this year. Last time I looked, Varsho had zero games played. That's so right. Behind the plate. So a, a start seems like a stretch, but you, know, you never can rule out the possibility that They want to pinch run for Jansen or they pinch it for Heinemann and then something happens to Jansen later in the game. And, you know, I, you know, certainly the James management is aware that Varcho can put the tools on even if they haven't asked him to do it yet.
0: Sure be interesting if he got 20 games this season because his catcher eligibility is going to be gone. At yeah, if he wants year.
3: 20, he better get started.
0: <laughs> that's that's exactly right. Uh, Kirk was also getting a little run as the DH you mentioned. I think he's got 37 plate appearances out of a little bit over 200 total plate appearances. So who gets the DH time that Kirk is now giving up?
3: Yeah, he was getting some DH time, tiny sample, as you say, but it didn't really look like he was succeeding there. Um, his... OPS was 60 points higher as a catcher than a DH, again, small sample. But um, as far as who picks up the at-bats, probably Brandon Belt, who's been the primary DH against right-handed pitching. You know, Belt, obviously, a left-handed batter. Uh, Belt hasn't been great with a 754 OPS, but um, you know that's he's traditionally... Somewhat more effective than that against righties, so he probably just gets a little more rope there. Um, when the when they do face a left-handed pitcher and don't have Kirk available, I would imagine it'll be. Somebody, one of the regulars picking up the DH at bats, whether it's, you know, Vlad DHing and Kevin Biggio going to first, or George Springer getting a day to rest his legs with uh, both Varsha and Kevin Kiermaier getting into the lineup, although that's not great because you don't really want to play Kiermaier lefty on lefty either. Um, you know, th- those kinds of things, I would imagine it would be just a random bench starter day, but if it means either Belt or Kiermaier getting in the lineup against a lefty, that's uh That's not good news for the Jays.
0: Yeah, they do have a couple of other guys. Whit Merrifield can play and has played some outfield, left and center field. They shove uh, Varsho into center on those occasions, usually versus left-handed pitching, of course, as you said. Uh, Let's move on to the American League pitchers, Ray and uh, Jorge Lopez. The Twins bullpen got some attention this week at Baseball HQ. Doug Dennis included the Twins in his latest Bullpen Buyer's Guide. And in playing time today, Rick Green covered the Twins who placed reliever Jorge Lopez on, they call it the restricted list. I think in practice it's a 15-day injured list for mental health reasons and some other reasons. What happens with Jorge Lopez out of the Twins lineup?
3: Yeah, this is going to have some ripples in the back end of... The Twins' bullpen, uh, Lopez got off to a great start this season, um, a clean April with no runs allowed. But since then, 15 runs and 15 innings since then. So he's been uh, getting knocked around pretty decently. Um, that all nets out to a 5 0 ERA in 29 appearances. Uh, very, very rough going lately with 16 hits and 12 runs in just his last six and a third innings. Um, and the velocity was down the other night. So um, lots of warning signs that something wasn't right there. Um, it turned, just in terms of his stuff and effectiveness.
0: Of course, we wish Jorge Lopez well, and he was getting some save opportunities behind Joanne Duran. So who's going to get the leftovers now?
3: Yeah, we don't know how long this could last. As you say, the restricted list is a little more nebulous than just an IL stint, but uh, I think we probably need to plan that he's going to be out for a while. Um, we had previously allocated the saves in a 60-40 split with Duran ahead of Lopez in that pecking order, um, but Rick has now changed that to kind of an 80-10 split with Duran picking up the 80%, 10% over to Brock Stewart, and then uh, you know Griffin Jacks. Um, also maybe lurking as in the number three spot there. Um, the call up for, uh, Lopez's roster spot is Jordan Blazowicz. Um, but we would imagine he'll be in low leverage situations at least to start out.
0: And as I said, in the bullpen buyer's guide, relief pitching analyst, Doug Dennis covered five teams, including the twins. What's his outlook for the twins bullpen from his point of view? Yeah,
3: Doug pointed out. I, I didn't even realize this, but uh, you know, sometimes we end up thinking we know what's going on in a bullpen, sort of by reputation, and then you know, the reality might be different. In this case, the reality for the Twins bullpen is they've only had two saves over the last month, so we're left to do nothing but kind of guess at what the pecking order is. Right? Duran had one of those saves, and Brock Stewart, who I just mentioned, actually had the other one. Um, for sure, Jorge Lopez. Doug points out, wasn't going to be in the saves mix anyway, even before being taken off the roster, just because he had been so ineffective of late. Um, Duran, of course, is unquestionably the skills leader in that bullpen with a uh, 248 ERA this year and a 183 expected ERA over the last month, Um, and the leverage index, which Doug loves to look at to indicate managerial confidence and tendencies, uh, shows Duran's clearly on top of that, and Brock Stewart's next in line. Um, so Stewart may be the low-hanging fruit here in terms of guys who might be available for pickup in your league who are closest to... Uh, you know, meaningful work, and given that Baldelli has long demonstrated that even with a weapon like Duran in his bullpen, that he likes to spread the saves around, either to not use Duran on back-to-back days, or you know, work a little more, um, work sometimes work Duran a little bit earlier in a uh, big situation, et cetera. So it's not a uh, it's not a set and forget it bullpen. So Stewart and, as both Rick and Doug said, also Griffin Jacks are probably worth tracking here.
0: In playing time tomorrow coverage of the five teams in the American League Central, HQ analyst Brian Rudd looked at another bullpen in Chicago. Of course, Liam Hendricks came back, and it was a great story, but then he almost immediately went back onto the IL with a sore elbow, and right-hander Kendall Graveman has gone back into the closer role. But Brian Rudd says Kendall Graveman looks shaky in the job.
3: Yeah, and in fact, I think we touched the, touched on this last week too, where Graveman looks shaky good good surface stats, a 251 ERA and a sub-1 whip, Uh, but his expected ERA is up over four, um, being propped up by some very favorable hit rates and strand rates. Um, And of course, then given the overall situation in the White Sox, you have to wonder if uh, Graveman could be trade bait too, as we get into trade season here. Um, As I said, we talked about this last week and we talked about Ronaldo Lopez and Joe Kelly being the quote-unquote competition to Graveman in this pen, but they're both rocky, um, you know, fasten your steep kind of situations as well. Um, so I like that because I think I called that door number one, door number two, and curtain number three last week. And Brian went further and found uh, closet number four, I guess, um, to talk about Keenan Middleton, um, who I thought was a good call out here. And I went scurrying when Brian referenced Middleton because I'm like he had 15 minutes as the angels closer a number of years ago. And I wanted to go back and see when that was. And it was 2018. And when I was looking up to see what, when that was, he had six saves for the angels in 2018. He also had four for the Mariners in 2021, which I had totally forgotten. So that's like another 10 minutes of closer experience. Um, But he's actually been really good this year. Um, 19% swing strike rate, 31% K rate, 21% 21% K minus BB. Those are all career highs and especially in this particular bullpen kind of rise to the top of the crop very quickly. Um, most excitingly, I seem to, to remember from those prior stints that he was kind of volatile, volatile as a, uh, as a fly ball pitcher, but uh, he's kind of flipped out on his, on its ear this year and he's now got a 56% ground ball rate. So that's pretty cool. A
0: couple of other guys, uh, Brian mentioned Gregory Santos Uh, 13% swinging strike rate, but a couple of career saves in the minors. I think that feels like a long shot. Uh, Let's move over to the National League hitters. Ryan Bloomfield's Bloomboard's extravaganza in the speculator column. He also looked at some likely home run faders. And at the top of that list was Miami outfielder, Jesus Sanchez. What's the story there?
3: Yeah. So Sanchez has the highest discrepancy between his power index, which is results based based on doubles, triples, and home runs, and his expected power index, which is based on quality of contact, hard hit balls, fly balls, that sort of thing. Um, and the discrepancy between his PX and XPX um, is 75 points of difference, a 144 actual power index this year, um, which is 40% above average, versus a 69 XPX, which says his actual power skills are 31% below average, which is you know, a pretty stark difference. Um, home run per fly ball actually tells the same story, um he is home run for sanchez's home run for fly ball last year was 20 percent. it's up at 32 percent this year and let's not forget that this when we say this year for sanchez that's not even a can i say full half season i can say that right um because he missed a couple weeks on the il as well he's still 25 I mean, you know so the best thing we can say about him is maybe he hasn't really reached his ceiling yet. And, um, Miami does favor left-handed home runs by about 12% from league average. So a couple of points in his favor, but, um, the mid twenties home run pace overall, just based on that skills discrepancy, looks like it's, uh, it's a little bit out over his skis right now.
0: Another national league hitter on Ryan's list of home run overachievers is San Francisco third baseman, JD Davis.
3: Yeah. Same sort of situation here. um, 126 power index versus a 108 expected so he's you know putting up 26 percent better than league average power when the power skills are really just a tick above league average uh and it's a 25 percent home run per fly ball this year versus 17 last year that's propping that up um but he might be uh showing some skill growth there too um, back in the forecaster last offseason, we said you know he barrels the ball all the all the time, elite exit velocity, ex- expected home runs. Said there should be even more power there. So maybe he's realizing that. And let's not forget that this is his first full season in San Diego, San Francisco. Excuse me, he came from the Mets, and of course, um, City Field is a notoriously pitcher-friendly park. And let's not forget that of all of the park factors, San Francisco is maybe among the scurries these days the ball really seems to be still jumping out of there for i think reasons we don't understand i know we i know they made some park configuration changes during the pandemic but it really seems like the profile of that park has changed so this might be a case where we don't have a super handle on the hitting environment that he's in
0: is it one of the parks where they built a condo tower outside one of the uh, outfield fences or something like that and uh, I know that happened in two or three parks over the last couple of years. Uh, do you remember that San Francisco being one of them?
3: I don't. I don't think it was that. If I remember correctly, it was that there's a like a viewing area or something out around right field in the concourse that you know used to be like a see-through picket fence, and they closed the fen- and they closed over the fence, or they opened it up. One of the one of the two, and it like th- the speculation is that like especially in right field around the uh, the splash pond down there, that it it totally changed the air pattern by. Uh, By the way, they changed this, you know, like a lower level structure, not a, not a condo building or something like that.
0: I looked at that forecaster analysis and it gave him a upside projection of 25 home runs. And if you prorate this year's 10 home runs and 260 plate appearances and give him 650 plate appearances, you get 24.71 expected home runs. So it looks like the forecaster might have been on to something. Not to mention a 282 batting average. He's slightly outhitting his HQ expected batting average, which is in the 260s, but his stat cast expected batting average 277. So maybe something going on with JD Davis. Uh, let's slip over to the National League pitchers finally. In Dan Marcus's coverage of the National League West for Playing Time Tomorrow, he mentioned how stable the San Diego rotation has been of late. But looking ahead is what Playing Time Tomorrow is all about. So Dan looked ahead to see what might happen should someone in that rotation falter or get hurt. Where's the cavalry going to come from in the San Diego rotation should disaster strike?
3: Yeah, and I was wondering if Dan was going down this road when, you know, Joe Musgrove had that scare with his shoulder. Uh, a week or so ago. And it seems like a scare for Joe Musgrove is about at every three week occurrence. So that one was kind of right on schedule, but really the Darvish Snell Musgrove Waka group really are locked in as a, you know, as solid a top four as you can find anywhere. They've been seventh in starter ERA for the, for the season third in ERA and whip for starters over the last month. So they're really getting it done. Um, the fifth spot has been kind of a revolving door, um, Seth Lugo just came back off the aisle this week and took over that spot from Ryan Weathers, um, who uh, had been hanging up PQS disaster outings at an alarming rate. I think it was 89% of his starts, which, you know, to make my usual joke, PD is only 11% better than me.
0: Might actually even be worse than that because maybe you're going to get one over once in a while. Mark Gannon had a story about Seth Lugo as well in playing time today.
3: Yeah, so he came back off the IL on Tuesday, like I said, started against the Giants and, you know, had a good first outing, uh, you know, they held him to five innings, presumably as he's still building up and Lugo's never really been a 120 pitch workhorse kind of guy. He's obviously he spent his career as more of a swing man. But in this outing, five innings of one run ball, one walk and five caves, you know, very credible. Um it, going back to the start of the season when he had made the rotation earlier on before hitting the IL, he had pitched fairly well too. 42 innings of a 410 ERA, a 137 whip, K-BB minus of 15. Uh, you know Those aren't earth-shattering numbers, but for a fifth starter, not bad, especially given the starter attrition around the league this year. And if you're going to target guys like that, not only are the skills decent, but you know, the Padres offense finally is starting to look like it's living up to the um, the amount of star power it has there. And that lineup really seems to be coming to life. So not a terrible place to speculate either for a spot start or a couple of week pickup if you want to. Um, if you want to be, if you're going to be cautious here, it's probably because of workload. Um, I mentioned that with forty-two innings before the IL stint and another five this week, he's at forty-seven innings for the season now. Um, but and his career high is only 101, uh reached both in 17 and 18 and has and only through 65 last year. So you really don't think there's 150, 140, maybe not even 120 innings in that arm this year. So he's probably not in the rotation for the rest of the season, they'll run with him for a while now, but sooner or later, like, even if he stays healthy, they'll have to do something to manage the workload there.
0: So Dan had a few names in case another injury or other situation should arise. Who made that list?
3: Yeah. So the first one uh, was Nick Martinez who started the season in the rotation. So he'd be the most obvious candidate. He's kind of working in long relief now and is kind of on standby, I guess, for a rotation neither trying to keep him, you know, at least somewhat stretched out. You see him um, pick up a, you know, multi-inning relief appearance a couple times a week, occasionally vultures a three-inning save. Um, Other guys that Dan mentioned, there's Jay Groom, who I'm somewhat familiar with as a former Red Sox uh, first-round draft pick a number of years ago, who went over to the Padres in the famous Eric Hosper deal last uh, trade deadline around the Juan Soto deal. Um, he looked pretty good during spring training, but then um, has gotten knocked around pretty well in AAA A 19% strikeout rate versus a 16% walk rate. So that's just a 3% came out as BB um, to make that even worse. He's giving up home runs at a kind of the alarming rate of 1.8 per nine, uh, even in the PCL, where everyone gives up home runs, that's not a skill set you would be confident about if it was called to San Diego. Uh, Brent Honeywell is another guy, kind of like Martinez. He's been working in um, a multi-inning relief role. He's gotten more than four outs in 10 of his 26 appearances, but those have been more like more so than Martinez. Honeywell's been more of a 1.2-inning kind of guy. He's only thrown more than two innings once, I think, um, and given that injury history, you can imagine... Uh, the, the, the Padres are less likely to mess with Honeywell and ask more from him at this point. I think they would be happy to see him just get through the season um, intact in the role he's in now. So, back to Martinez. He's probably the first guy to call on, although if you, if you have to dig even deeper, um, there's Jackson Wolf um, down in A who's been dominating down there. He's a 7D prospect for the minor league baseball analyst, but he is dominating his first time through double A. So if that um, continues and at some point, maybe the Padres will want to see if that could carry over.
0: That uh, minor league baseball analyst piece on uh, Jackson Wolf said the, the previous success might be attributed more to a offbeat delivery than to overpowering stuff in the thing about major league hitters is that offbeat delivery will only work for so long. Look at Adam Simber this year. He's getting hammered all over the place, and he used to be fairly close to unhittable in a lot of situations. Uh, Blake Snell, you mentioned, also made one of Ryan Bloomfield's bloom boards. They called him a pitcher on a roll. That is, pitchers with the largest number of games since Memorial Day with swinging strike and strikeout minus walk rates that are way above average.
3: I thought I'm on a roll, that had something to do with relish, but I guess not. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Um, Snell actually was at the top of that list that Ryan put together, a four-point jump in a swing strike rate, 23-point jump in K-minus BB. Um, so when Ryan posted that, it was uh, a 33% K-minus BB, which is eye-popping on its own. Uh, but it's gotten even better. It's up to 41, 47% strikeout rate and a 6% walk rate since Memorial Day.
0: I saw that too, and in June an o thirty six ERA and an o sixty four WHIP. So Blake Snell is back, and of course everybody's interested. But also the specter of injury is always lurking over Blake Snell's shoulder.
3: Boy, o thirty six ERA and o sixty four WHIP. We talk about guys with sub one WHIPS, right? He's got a sub one ERA plus WHIP, or exactly one, I should say.
0: Yeah, that's great <laughs> stunning. Something. But yeah,
3: you have to worry with Snell about when the next shoe drops, right?
0: You do, and uh, I wonder if he starts to look like a sell-high guy if you're worried about that possibility, depending on what your team context is, of course. And going back to pitcher injuries, uh, the Giants put right-hander Alex Cobb on the I.L. He was having a pretty good year. One of their most reliable starters, 309... ERA across 79-ish innings. Jake Crumpler covering this story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. The Giants already had Ross Stripling on the IL, and he used to be the guy they kind of leaned on to come in and uh, put out some fires when starters got hurt. But who's going to get Cobb's starts while he recovers from a strained oblique with Ross Stripling already unavailable to cover?
3: Yeah, this looks like the initial estimate on Cobb was two weeks, but really at this time of year, and knowing that obliques tend to linger, it's probably more reasonable to think we're looking at after the All-Star break here. Um, so they, they're going to be at least a couple of starts for the Giants to fill in. Um, so far, they haven't really tipped their hand. They've got a bunch of bulk relievers they can cobble together between Jacob Junis and Sean Manaya, who's you know nominally uh, you know a starter by trade and but but has been working you know four to five inning pops as a reliever in front. Of, with an opener in front of them, uh, Sean Heel, Tristan Beck, Keaton Wynn are all guys who could either slot into that opener role in front of these guys, or in front of somebody like Manaya Or two or three of those guys could probably eat six innings on a given day themselves. So for now, we're just kind of sprinkling the playing time among all those guys, and t- and assuming that the Giants are going to patchwork this rather than commit to one solution while they're waiting for Cobb. Comp-
0: This raises a question for me. San Francisco is a pretty well-run team. They're nine games above 500. they They're second in the division behind the Padres. What's your general attitude, Ray, towards these bulk innings guys in modern baseball? Because to me, on its face, it looks like there could be some wins coming for a guy who gets to jump onto the mound in the second inning and throw his four innings or five innings, knowing that he's in line for the win, even if he doesn't get the full five innings because of the way that the win statistic is set up which is dumb
3: yeah it's hard to gauge i mean what you say is true and i think in the sort of earlier days of the opener with tampa that that was a more exploitable thing and you would see some guys who would come in in the second inning and pitch Five innings, and then they're leaving in the sixth. and if you're leaving in the sixth with the lead, well, hey, that's you know, if he, if he had started the game and done that, you would have been perfectly happy with that. I th- I think you know with the Rays in particular, and some of the other teams that messed around with this, the problem it became over time that um, they wouldn't necessarily stick with those guys that long. That the the primary reliever or the guy who you thought was going to get the bulk work would get two or three innings rather than four or five, and that reduced the counting stat value and reduced the chances of being around long enough for the win. They're still eligible for the win as the second guy in, but it's you know there's more innings to eat after they leave to protect the win. Um, so it, that had gotten less interesting to me in recent years, at least with the way Tampa did it. Uh, but the way the Giants are doing it is kind of interesting in that they've been letting Manaya in particular mostly work three and th- two thirds four four and two thirds innings after the after the opener so that gets back to kind of the mo- more more of the model I was talking about where you would think that there would be some win opportunities there and of course <laughs> the other aspect of it though is that pitcher needs to be effective as well. And Manaya in since they actually started putting an opener in front of him. I'm looking at his game log now. He's got eight relief appearances. Six of them are more than two more than three innings. So that's good. But only one win and that's you know but that's with five of the seven have been scoreless, though. So pitching pretty well in the role. You can see why it's working out. In the last month or so since they did this, Manaya um, has been better than he had been before that. His last 31 days' as ERA is 379 compared to 572 out on the year. He's got three walks and 23 strikeouts in 19 innings. So the this way of operating seems to suit him. But so far, the wins haven't come, but... Back to your point, conceptually, a guy who's going to come in in the second or third inning and pitch three or four innings, if he's effective, he should have a great chance of leaving with, you know, leaving the game, being in line for the win.
0: And that may happen. We'd have to look closer and see if he uh, pitched all those scoreless innings, went left with the lead, and then got the lead surrendered by the bullpen, or they didn't score any runs, and therefore his Zero inning, uh, zero zero scoring outing went for naught in that situation. And as I said, San Francisco is a pretty good team. I wonder if there's going to be opportunities in this situation where you kind of look ahead and try to plan and see. Where is that reliever bulk guy going to have a chance in a week and who's it against? You know, if we look for streaming starters. Maybe we're going to be looking for these streaming bulk guys. And finally, uh, Alex Becky's frequent flyer comment later in this show is going to look at another San Francisco possibility, minor league starter, left-hander Kyle Harrison. It's been a fair amount of buzz about Kyle Harrison of late. How do you see his chances of making the team, maybe getting some starts?
3: Yeah, I think they're pretty good. He was, uh, you're right that there's been a lot of buzz on him. Uh, you know, even going back to spring training, he's one of those guys where spring camp started and people didn't really think he had a chance of making the team, but then he pitched really well in the spring and hung around and he was still in camp. And, you know, sometimes like this year, people stayed in camp a little longer because. Other guys and on the team may have been out at the WBC, etc. But you know there was some there was some mid March buzz that Harrison may actually make the team, and that didn't happen. Um, but then he's gone down to Triple A. He hasn't been great there, um, with a 4.50 ERA and a 130 WHIP and 15 starts down there, striking out 15 guys per nine, which is great, but also walking seven and allowing one and a half home runs per nine. Again, PCL, but again, not great. Um, they're also Completely treating him with kid, kid gloves. He's worked only 49 innings in those 15 starts, which is probably the biggest reason he's still in AAA. Uh, but they can, um, they're obviously saving some innings there to have the option to use them with the big club in the second half. So, you know, on a team that doesn't really have a lot in terms of top end starting pitching, I mean, how many? giant pitchers that we talked about in the last seven minutes here. And, you know, there are a heck of a lot of them that are, you know, really above average. They're really feeling the loss of Alex Cobb. That tells you, uh, that tells you something right there, right? But they're, um, <laughs> you know, they, they could really use somebody that could plug into the top of that rotation. And Harrison is the hope to be that guy long-term. And maybe, maybe long-term starts really soon.
0: All right. It'll be something to watch for that. Sure, Ray. Thanks very much for helping us out. Talk to you again in a week. Thank you, PD. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have part two of our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus, but let me first highlight another great item or two on the Baseball HQ site right now. In this week's Speculator column, analyst Ryan Bloomfield has a 2023 Bloomboards barrage, looking at recent filtered lists he's posted on Twitter, like likely power surgers and faders, starting pitchers on rolls, and ace-level pitchers. And I have a fax and Fluke spotlight piece on Jorge Mateo's huge April and catastrophic May. And in this week's Skills-Based Buyer's Guides, analyst Stephen Nickrand looks at home road splits for batters and starting pitchers, and bullpen buyer's guide analyst Doug Dennis reviews the latest developments in St. Louis, the Cubs, the Mets, Arizona, and Minnesota. The speculator... The Columns, the Skill-Based Buyer's Guides, and My Facts and Flukes Spotlight. A bunch of great resources online right now at BaseballHQ.com.
1: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. Mike, welcome back to part two.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: A couple of weeks back uh, at Baseball Prospectus, you did your two-month saves landscape review. Why the two-month mark for this?
1: Uh, there are a couple of reasons. Uh, one of those was a comparison piece to last year when I, I did the same analysis, so I just wanted to, to have the same vantage point. Um, also, to see if the precept in last year's article held that there isn't really a lot of saves turnover in the first two months. Uh, we talk a lot about saves and about fabbing closers, but I, I wanted to see if it was true that Uh, saves, particularly in in April, May, are kind of hard to come by via free agency.
0: You said at the outset of the article that conventional wisdom is that closers are terrible investments and that we should either avoid them completely by dumping saves, by throwing darts late in the draft, or by acquiring them through fab or trading because it doesn't matter. Then you say the conventional wisdom is just wrong. Why is it wrong?
1: Well, closers are bad investments relative to players at their ADPs. So, for example, if, if you take a closer in the third round, if you take an elite closer like Emmanuel Classe, he's going to return less raw fantasy value than a hitter or a starting pitcher you take in the third round. However, relative to other closers, the top 10 or 15 are great investments compared to the ones you take in the second half of the draft. So because saves are harder to find in deeper leagues and particularly in season, and because clogging up reserve slots during the draft with would-be closers, you know, hurt you a little bit there, I think that's where the mis- misperception is. People think, oh, closers are bad investments. It's like, well, it's, it's kind of true in terms of how they might do compared to other non-closers. But if you need those saves, you're in a league like you know NFBC where where there's an overall component, um, then you almost have to kind of bite the bullet and take that closer early as opposed to you know rolling the dice late.
0: When you looked at those secondary guys, the kind of taken between the twelfth round all the way down to the reserves, or even grabbing saves out of the free agent pool, I suspect that that's not as productive as people think. But what did you find?
1: What I found this year, and it was pretty consistent with last season. Um, six of the fifteen bottom relievers, and these are relievers projected to be closers preseason um, they they they' six of the fifteen lead led their team in saves in time in the article. that's forty percent. so so that means that more than half the relievers taken late don't lead their their teams in saves. So they might have a few or, or a couple, but yes, if, if you wait past that point in the draft you're you're kind of just. You're kind of just rolling the dice and taking a chance. Like it, it's nice to get a Carlos Estevez and I have him in a couple of leagues, but that's not the the typical outcome. He he's an outlier. Um, and then free agency, particularly in the early going, up until about this point of the season, like mid June, are really difficult to find. There've been three pitchers like that: Pierce Johnson, uh, Will Smith, the Rangers. Will Smith, obviously, um, and Andrew Chafin, who you know, since I wrote that article, doesn't have a save. Those are success stories. Like everybody else, what you're getting is like four or five saves, which is okay. But if you're making a big, big fab investment or or waiver claim, that's not exactly what you're looking for.
0: You wrote that the primary driver in most discussion of saves tactics and how to approach the category is that saves are unpredictable. You acknowledge that that idea is somewhat true, but not because the individual relievers are unreliable. So what's the reason that saves are so unpredictable?
1: It's team usage patterns. So the, the way saves are, and I'm sure you remember this, I, I think I wrote this once in, in, a, in another article about saves last year is that you used to draft a closer, you'd wait for him to lose his job and then you'd pick up his replacement or pick up another closer and you'd repeat that pattern and, you know until the end. Uh, now, team usage patterns are very different. So I'm, I'm a Mets fan and I've, I've seen this happen a lot where David Robertson, who's their, who's their best reliever, comes in in the eighth inning to face the heart of the order. Then Adam Ottavino comes in in the ninth and you know gets the save. Doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes the the heart of the order comes up when Robertson get you know can get the save, but it's creating a situation where you know Robertson's getting maybe two thirds or seventy percent of the chances, and Ottavino's getting twenty five to thirty percent. That is not uncommon. There, there's a few teams like the Angels with the Steves and you know like Cleveland with with where they're the closer. That that's how the manager uses them, but. It, it's not typical anymore, and it's just something to expect at this point where it's like, okay, my, my closer is going to get 25 to 30 saves, not because you know he's struggling or went through a rough patch, but because that's how the manager is, is using him. And I think some of his pitchers have kind of accepted this. There's a time when I think pitchers didn't want to do that, felt uncomfortable in the eighth. More and more of them feel like, well, wherever those outs are, I, I feel comfortable pitching.
0: And I wonder if part of that might be that the arbitration process is getting more favorably inclined to high leverage roles rather than saves as a way to determine how much value a particular pitcher has. Of course, if they say if the if the arbitrator you go in and talk to him and say, My client has got forty-five saves last year and all the best other guys had thirty-five, so he's, you know, one third better. If that has kind of gone by the wayside, the way wins have for starting pitchers and they focus more on my, my guy has got so many innings, so many, uh, base runners, so few runs allowed, all these kind of things, few inherited runners that I wonder if the arbitration process, Mike has some smarter, more nuanced ways of assessing uh, reliever value that's affecting how the pitchers approach the role.
1: It's possible. I I know for sure in free agency that that's something that, you know, teams don't look at nearly as much anymore. So, so as a result, you know, a reliever probably feels like, well, you know, if I don't have all the saves, but if my other numbers are good and some of my secondary numbers below the surface are great, you know, then what winds up happening is, you know, you, you wind up in a position where the reliever's like, well, I'm going to get paid if I perform, I, I don't have to worry so much about saves.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Mike Giannullo from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, uh, you review FAB spending every week at Baseball Prospectus. And before we get to this week's review, you had a piece a while back that I really liked. You said it's different and more difficult to usefully analyze FAB budgeting and tactics than draft day budgeting and tactics. Why is that?
1: Well, you know, each week is different and teams can spend differently in FAB. Um, You know, just just as an example, in a league with a $100 budget, if someone with the most fab has $40 that that league is going to play out very differently than a league where three people like, like a neighbor right now are sitting on 80 or more. Um, each week changes the dynamic. The players coming in change the dynamic. Injuries change the dynamic. Whereas in auctions, the dynamic in, in, in that is generally the same throughout the day. Yes, it can change a little bit if, you know, somebody takes a closer earlier, a bunch of closers go off the board. But for the most part, it, it's a static event You know, that we don't get much news. Whereas fab, there's there's always news. There's always new information. It just constantly changes what what we're doing. Like even I, I tend to plan for my fab on a Friday. Um, often by Sunday, like I have to make adjustments to bids just based on some of the news over a two-day period.
0: With that context in mind, you look back at how the 2022 fabbing went in the great fantasy baseball invitational, which is an experts league that takes place on the NFBC platform. What did you see with the hitters in fab last year?
1: The the best hitter acquisitions last year were generally uh, cheap. Uh, there also was There's an idea with Fab that you it's better to spend your money early and you know get the players because you max out your stats. That wasn't true last year. It just didn't play out. Um, we, we also spent a lot on rookie hitters, but outside of Michael Harris, uh, they, they they weren't particularly good investments. There were a lot of veterans mixed in there as well. Uh, so it was pretty. I won't say easy, but you could kind of mix and match and and you know pick up veterans and pick up players who were playing regularly who weren't the biggest names who who wound up being quite productive.
0: And did that same paradigm follow the pitchers?
1: Uh, it followed the pitchers in terms of their fab cost. Um, unlike the hitters, you did have to get in early on the hitters uh, on the pitchers. I'm sorry to really see an impact. Um, the ex- and so that that's where it was a, a little bit different um, with with the pitchers. You you really needed to get somebody. I'd say in the first six or seven weeks. Uh, if you got a pitcher in the middle of the season, yes, they they helped somewhat. But it just at that point it might have been a little bit too late. At least in terms of their performance.
0: Is that a indication that we should be more aggressive spending early just because we get the stats for a longer run?
1: It's probably for for pitchers, that is probably the case. And, and I think for pitchers, what some of it is, it's the longer run, but it's because the volume we get from those strikeouts, the 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 opportunity we get at wins is key, particularly with those starting pitchers um as opposed to waiting. There's just so much volatility. That if you get a pitcher in June or July, unless that pitcher goes on a run where they don't have a bad start, which is next to impossible, you're kind of losing out a little bit.
0: You pointed out that almost all the most expensive fab acquisitions tended to disappoint with their results. But I thought, isn't that inevitable in almost any auction that you participate in? They call it buyer's remorse, where the last guy to bid probably got the worst deal.
1: Yes, although it's again, there's a difference between the auction and and fab. Where, you know, if you look at the ROI on the most expensive expensive auctioned or, or drafted hitters, it isn't nearly as poor as it is with the fab hitters. Some is just logical because the best hitters are, are the best hitters in an auction, or it, again, it's the whole pool. So they're always going to be better opportunities than you're going to get with the fab hitters because with a couple exceptions of some rookies who come up who are, are tremendous or potentially tremendous like ellie de la cruz this year like the best hitter to give a given week might be the equivalent of, of like a ninth or tenth round pick so i think that's where the disappointment kind of comes in we're, we're spending or potentially spending like ooh, this is the best hitter available i've got to get him but you're you're spending for a tenth or eleventh round pick because you have all this fab or you have this need and you're like, ooh, I have to get him. And that goes back to what I was talking about before. That that's why the dynamic is so different. Like some people are spending because it's like, ooh, this is the week I have to get somebody and they've got money, you know, burning a hole in their pocket. It's not necessarily the wrong strategy. It's just why analyzing fab or to analyzing how we spend our auction dollars or draft capital is very different.
0: I was wondering about that too, the question of the measurement Because if I'm interpreting you correctly, there's such a big amount of contextual decision making that goes into a fab bid. For instance, somebody really, really needs to have uh, a starter for injury reasons or underperformance reasons and maybe thinks they can win their league by getting a replacement pitcher. So we've got Gavin Williams coming into the league uh, we're talking on Wednesday, so tonight against uh, Oakland. And on the weekend, he'll be uh, presuming that he does well. There's going to be teams out there who think this guy could be truly a difference maker. And if they have $800 left of their thousand, it's not entirely unreasonable to think that somebody might bid 650 or 550 or whatever they think it's going to take. Especially if somebody else in the league is perceived as having that same kind of uh that same kind of reason for wanting to bid heavily on Williams as well.
1: Yeah, the the other piece of that too is, is that if you have a team with a lot of injuries early or a lot of bad luck, you tend to be more aggressive. Like in my TGFBI, I'm, I'm near the bottom in Fab, and it's, and I've made some good acquisitions. Like I got David Robertson when he you know became the closer. I got Matt McClain. Um I, I've got a couple other players who like I've got Taylor Wall. So so the acquisitions have been good. But I've spent that capital because I was like, well, I need these players. Like I, I need to, you know, get, you know, stay where I am, and rather than, you know, keep falling in the standings. But it means I don't have the opportunity now. Whereas the teams that that did well, you know, had the good fortune with injury, you know, had some players overperforming, they have the luxury to say, well, my my team's doing really well. I have a lot of fab. I haven't had to spend it on injury replacements or replacing poor players. Now I can make the investment on Williams to potentially put me over the top. That That's part of the context too, for
0: sure. You also made the point that a fantasy owner who's debating whether to spend big on a rookie starter versus a potential closer should go with the closer. And that surprised me. How come you said that?
1: Well, in terms of, of the failure or, or the downside, if you get a closer, you make a triple digit bid in the league with $1,000. He doesn't do well. He doesn't get the saves. You kind of move on quickly. Um, if you take a risk on a starter who's mediocre and make a big bid, um, that starter can do a lot of damage before you say goodbye. So, so the closer is safer. This really goes down against what we're just talking about in terms of risk. So if you have more room in your risk profile or need to take the risk that might not necessarily hold. And, and then I'd go after the starter in that case.
0: Well, as I mentioned, uh, the most recent article is your week 12 fab review that came out Monday of this week. You started with recent call-up Emmett Sheehan, who got called up by the Dodgers. Average winning bid, 102 in a range of $2 as a minimum and $500 at the top. You do these reviews, as I said, every week. How normal is it to see a $498 range in the bidding wins?
1: That's pretty abnormal and and usually that's driven by one extreme outlier bid. Um, it, it's maybe happened once or one or two other times a season where there's been that much of a gap and like four ninety eight is really high what what you what you'll more commonly see is like two or three hundred where of a gap where one team you know, bid like 285, for example, and the next team bid like 60 on a player where you're like, wow, you know, I, I can't believe this player went for close to 300. It goes back to what you were talking about, though. I, I think at this point in the season, there's a couple teams, and this is more to in TGFBI than main event, where I think main event people are more active, they're, they're spending their money more regularly. I think there's some people in TGFBI are kind of already half paying attention and haven't been spending like, well, I, I should spend it now because I, I can't take it with me
0: you said in your analysis of Emmett Sheehan that he has the kind of stuff that it takes to succeed, but you had a couple of important concerns. What were they?
1: Well, um, the concerns with him, I, I think my biggest concern, you know, 12, 12 outings in double A, and that's all the experience in the high minors. Um, so yeah, the raw stuff is is potentially great. And, and long-term, I like Sheehan, to be clear, as, as a dynasty or a keeper. Um, I, I just feel like right now there, there's that. There's the fact that from a scouting perspective, the the fastball is is really good. The the secondary still sound like they hey, they need a little bit of work. Uh, his control and command has kind of wavered um, you know over over time. Um, I know that's something. If there's a team that can work with that and improve him, it's the Dodgers. I, I think really my biggest concern is when when Julio Arias comes back, and he should be back in a couple of weeks from a hamstring injury. I know we thought that a couple of weeks ago as well. Um, They're going to have a roster crunch. And given Sheehan's lack of experience, unless he's completely lighting it up, he he seems like a prime candidate to get sent down.
0: You said that the projection models are underestimating what San Francisco outfield call-up Luis Matos might be able to do. Uh, What did you mean by that?
1: So projection models typically weigh minor league stats, and and they're weighing a lot of of Matos' 2022 stats. Uh, he made some significant imp- improvements to both his approach and swing this past offseason, and they carried over in the minors. I suspect those aren't being baked into the models. So wh- when I say that the projections are underestimating him, no, he's he's not a superstar. But you're, you're looking at maybe, I think, like five home runs and seven steals the rest of the way. I, I think you can up those numbers a little bit, and it wouldn't surprise me if he hit 10 home runs and stole 12 bases the rest of the way. I think he's a really talented player. And you know from a scouting perspective, you know like I said, he improved, he, he got better and I don't think the like straight up projections are quite caught up to that yet.
0: Another call-up uh, this one considered at least somewhat overdue was Cleveland catcher Bo Naylor. Where do you see him among catchers the rest of the way? And how much extra value do you think gets' baked into his fab bidding because he's a catcher who could be a difference maker?
1: Well, he, he's probably a top 15 catcher and conservatively, assuming he sticks. So, you know, in, any, in almost any one catcher league, he's worth considering. Uh, in two catcher leagues, he's a no-brainer. Um, I also pointed out if you're in an on-base league, like Patrick and I are in Tout Wars, that you, you move him up two or three slots higher because Naylor's great on base. Uh, as far as upping his bid, there, there's something to that with catchers. I, I do feel – and Naylor's bids looked somewhat conservative to me. The bid should be higher on him, but people are often afraid with catchers that they're not going to hit right away, and it's, it's it's somewhat of a valid concern, but I feel more that you should take a bit of a chance if you have the fab and you have the catching hole and, and grab someone like Naylor just because – um, he could offer so much more at the position. You know, we saw this last year with, with some of the catchers like Alejandro Kirk and MJ Melendez and, you know, Adley Rushman when he came up. I'm not suggesting Naylor's as good as Rushman, but we have seen, you know, catchers produce and, and offer so much at the position. So, yeah, if if you had the money, um, Naylor's someone you should have been targeting last week. If he's still available in your, your 12-team league, you know, this week, and depending on who your catcher is, you should be looking at him as well.
0: Another call-up who got a lot of discussion on Twitter and on the boards and stuff was Kansas City outfielder Samad Taylor, and you called him an absolute must roster in Roto formats. Why the high recommendation?
1: Well, speed in Roto really matters, and, and yes, there's, there's more speed this year and there's more players running, but even accounting for that, Taylor really seems to fit kind of the perfect storm of he has a speed, um, he has some talent I think that goes beyond just his speed as well. I know he stole 34 bases in the minors to date this year, um, but he's got a 14% or had a 14% walk rate in the minors. So this isn't just a case of somebody who's running but isn't doing much else. Um, And he's on a team, he's on a bad team that I, I don't really see why they wouldn't let him run. Um, so, if you need steals, uh, he's someone I'd certainly want to add. And, and I don't think it's just going to be an empty profile either, where he steals a bunch of bases and hits 230. I think he can be good enough to really propel your team elsewhere as well.
0: In tout American League, uh, Taylor went for $89, actually, to me, while fellow call up Dyron Blanco of Kansas City went for about double that, I think 177 or 176. What was going on there?
1: Well, you'd have to tell me because you you know the league, but what it looked like looking at the bids, it looked like one bidder, I think it was Larry Schechter really wanted Blanco. Taylor had more bids overall, so so more people were targeting him, but but I think people were looking eyeing Blanco and thinking, well, you know he he has even more raw speed, so that that was what they were were pushing for with him. I think something I pointed out in my column about Blanco was that in a mono league those steals like someone who just steals bases and doesn't do a lot else can can really make an impact and it's because you're replacing a player in a mono league who oftentimes is doing absolutely nothing else whereas in a mixed league you're replacing somebody who's a regular or at least a semi-regular player so if all Blanco does is steal bases and hits for no power and maybe scores runs as a two-category player that's that's kind of a waste. So I think that's the difference there. I think it's, that's what Larry was identifying and I don't know who, who Larry had to replace, but I'm guessing he was probably replacing like a cipher or next to nothing in an outfield slot.
0: That was part of my consideration on Taylor because I was dropping Uh, I can't even remember who, just a a guy that was in my roster active but wasn't actually playing. So it's a pretty easy decision to make. But I looked at Blanco as well, and I thought the guy's close to 30, I believe. And if Kansas City's serious about trying to see what they've got for the future, you don't start, generally speaking, with a 30-year-old speed-only guy. So I thought that Taylor would probably get the bulk of the opportunities. And so far, that hasn't been the case.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I and it's a weird thing about Kansas City, too. I, I don't know. I never really know what they're doing, um, you know, as far as some of that goes. But, but some of it, too, is a lot of their prospects are, are already up. So I don't necessarily know in the short term, at least, if Blanco is necessarily going to be blocked. I, I think there's an opportunity for some playing time for him.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus. And Mike, as you know, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. And because we've been talking about fab with you and uh, also looking at the coming weekend's fab runs with some of our other guests, let's continue the tradition and start with your boons. These are players who look like they will be good fab value on the weekend, uh, starting with a fab batter who could be a boon.
1: Um, I know I'm not the first person to talk about him, uh, but Mike Talkman on the Cubs – uh, does a little bit of everything, has some power, has some speed, a great walk rate. He's going to score a lot of runs. Uh, batting average has been really good. He seems to be revitalized and, and looks a lot like the Henry looked like with the Yankees in 2019. Don't think he'll hit for that level of power, but just, just a nice all around player and deep mixed and still available in quite a few places. So if you need an outfielder, Talkman's a, a good target.
0: How about a pitcher who could be good value, a boon for this weekend?
1: Michael Lorenzen on, on the Tigers, uh, he's you just kind of look at him and he's been sneakily solid. Yes, he's a matchup play, uh, but he's somebody I wouldn't be afraid to use, particularly when he's facing a central opponent. Uh, the one thing about Lorenzen is if you're looking for wins, look elsewhere. But I, I really like Lorenzen as, as kind of a sneaky value play in deeper leagues.
0: I do too, Uh, we were talking about Michael Lorenzen before we started recording and I mentioned that I have him in my American League Tout team as a streamer and I've only been putting him out there against the weaker sisters in baseball and so far, he's got an ERA under three for me. I don't know what it is overall because I've t- I always take him out when he's up against the Atlantas and the Tampas and stuff like that. So yeah. he's a good streamer, if nothing else. Uh, let's go to your Baines. These are players you think are going to be overbid this weekend. Uh, again, let's start with a batter who could be a bane.
1: Well, this one makes me kind of sad because obviously as a player, I love him and you might not like to hear this as a Canadian, but Joey Votto, uh, great player. you know, career-wise, Hall of Famer without a doubt, um, hit a home run in his first game back, I think there's going to be a lot of excitement about Votto in leagues where he's available. And I think a lot of people had dropped him or, you know, didn't have him, particularly in 12-team league, mixed leagues. Um, He's going to be fine. But, like, when you look at Votto, he's had one year, you know, since 2018 with more than 15 home runs. Um, He's had one year, you know, since 2019 where he's hit over 267, I, I think he's okay in deeper leagues, but I suspect in 12-team mixed leagues, he's not really somebody who's going to make all that much of an impact. But I can see people, because the Reds are doing well, and they're going to look at the lineup and look at the context and, and put some big bids on him. I don't mind adding him. It's more a matter of don't don't put a, a super big bid on Votto if, if you need a hitter. Like Be a little more conservative, and if somebody else gets him, that's that's
0: fine. One of the favorite things I knew about Joey Votto back in the day when he was an MVP-level player was that I think he had two or three seasons in a row where he had no infield pop plies. Not one in all of those plate appearances. And I noticed the last time I was looking, uh, because I was looking at him for this weekend, he's he's had a few this the, over the last couple of years and i think it's partly because as he got older he sold out for power at the expense of his on-base percentage and batting average and that means more strikeouts that means more weak contact because you're swinging so hard at everything trying to hit it out and i guess maybe somebody told him that where his was his value was but i don't know about that uh, finally mike who's a pitcher who could be a bane for this fab weekend
1: well, I, I again, someone I think based on recency bias and, and yet another good outing, people are going to pick up uh, Wade Miley of the Brewers. Um, he's a fine streamer, but and he's pitched. He's, his ERA looks good, but low strikeouts just not going to offer a lot there. Yes, he's on a good team, but he's just somebody I wouldn't put a big bid on, and I, I suspect some people are going to just based on how he's performed year to date, and you know just based on the need for pitching. He's someone I'd rather add a, as like a, a really cheap bid and maybe put on reserve and, and just use in, in certain occasions. Kind of similar to Votto. Nothing wrong with adding Wade Miley, but just just don't, don't look at his raw numbers for this year and overbid.
0: Mike Gianella's Boons, Mike Talkman of the Cubs, Michael Lorenzen of Detroit, his Baines, Joey Votto of Cincinnati, and Wade Miley of Milwaukee. Gosh, Mike, uh, always fun to talk with you. Remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work.
1: Well, I'm at Baseball Prospectus. Um, most of what I write is behind the paywall. I've got a, a column once a week, which you alluded to, that there's just kind of a free-form column. I, I've got a Fab column once a week. I'm on Twitter at Mike Gianella. It's all one word. Um, and then we do have the podcast you mentioned, Flags Fly Forever, that comes out every other week or so during the season, and you can catch that wherever you get podcasts, Apple or you know anywhere else you, you find those.
0: And I can uh, vouch for the baseball prospectus material. The whole site is just fantastic. Of course, everybody knows that. And the podcast is a lot of fun. Sometimes it goes off on some tangents, but that makes it interesting to me because after a while, you just get tired of hearing about nothing but baseball. I loved the, the episode that you guys had with the, uh, with the cameos. I thought that was a lot of fun. Mike, uh, thanks again for doing this. It was a lot of fun. I hope we get to talk with you again later on in the year.
1: Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me.
0: Mike Gianella writes for Baseball Prospectus and co-hosts the Flags Fly Forever podcast. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentaries. The Frequent Flyer and my extra innings are on the way. But first, one last reminder of some of the resources available to you when you subscribe to BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We have comprehensive coverage of the prospects who can make or break your fantasy season. There's the Daily Call-Ups Report. This week, the Baseball HQ scouting team looks at recent call-ups including Cleveland right-hander Gavin Williams, Boston left-hander Brandon Walter, and White Sox utility man Zach Remillard. In the Eyes Have It podcast, scouting analysts Chris Blessing and Brent Hershey have some looks into the Florida State League, and back on the site, Chris has an article about his in-person look at players in the High A Northwest League, including Colorado third baseman Sterling Thompson and outfielder Benny Montgomery and Seattle first baseman Tyler Locklear. Comprehensive prospect coverage, another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Well, I've mentioned a few of the resources on the site now at BaseballHQ.com, and really that's still just the tip of the iceberg of all the great content and tools you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. We have player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, long shot suggestions in the speculator column, team injury reports and player injury analysis, gaming strategy analysis for Roto, points leagues, NFBC, and alternative formats, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business.
2: Baseball HQ
1: Radio.
0: Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio PD here. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Coming up, we have my extra innings comment, and leading off, it's the frequent flyer, where we look at a player who might be available on your league's free agent list and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. Here, with a look at San Francisco left-handed starter Kyle Harrison, whose name came up just a minute ago with Ray, is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky.
2: The talent is exceptional. He's been simply dominant at each rung of the minor league ladder, according to Baseball HQ's 2023 baseball forecaster... In fact, inside MLB.com's November 21st, 2022, showcase of potential 2023 Rookie of the Year candidates, the combination Jim Callis, Sam Dykstra, and Jonathan Mayo called 21-year-old San Francisco Giants starter Kyle Harrison the game's best left-handed pitching prospect. Wow, high praise, but also high expectations for a 21-year-old. Nevertheless, perhaps few expect a 1 3 record through 15 AAA starts in 2023 with a 453 ERA, a full point higher than his career 324 ERA in the minors. Yikes! That's why 21 year old San Francisco Giants hometown hero, Kyle Harrison, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Worth noting, Harrison was drafted the third round 85th overall in 2020 out of De La Salle High School in Concord, California. Yet despite De La Salle's relatively close proximity, 26 miles, to San Francisco's Oracle Park, perhaps Kyle Harrison is closer now to that destination than ever before. San Francisco Chronicle's John Shea recently, on June 10th, suggested that Kyle Harrison could save or at least rescue the Giants' rotation in 2023. Again, high expectations. Meanwhile, the Athletics' Andrew Bangerly asked on June 19th if top pitching prospect Kyle Harrison will grab a tube of Neos Sport in the coming days, later concluding that Harrison's debut might not happen this week, but it's not far away. Make note of that comment. Media speculation, however, continued to build at a fevered pitch after Harrison was scratched from his June 20th start. Remember, Baseball HQ's 2023 baseball forecaster on page 233 postulated that Harrison could be ready for his Major League debut by midseason. And Harrison's dominance rate of 14.86 strikeouts per game for 2023, which far exceeds Baseball HQ's elite pitcher benchmark of 9 strikeouts per game, seems to support this notion for Harrison's quick promotion. Remember, Baseball HQ's 2023 minor league baseball analyst on page 86 opined that Harrison has some of the best pure stuff in the minors, with all offerings at least solid average to double plus. Even so, NBC Sports Bay Area reporter Alex Pavlovich on May 12th revealed that the Giants believe Harrison will fare better when he's not dealing with an automatic strike zone, perhaps making 21-year-old San Francisco Giants southpaw Kyle Harrison an automatic ad in many leagues as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for extra innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about Matt Chapman's vanishing homers. I was on Twitter the other day, making the most productive possible use of my time, when I saw a post discussing Matt Chapman's reduced home run rate this season. Through 86 games, Chapman has just 10 homers, about on pace for 19. Somebody posted that Chapman also has 36 barrels so far this season, and given that the game-wide average home runs per barrel is around 50%, he should have 16 to 18 home runs. Then someone else replied and wondered if Chapman just isn't hitting the right kind of barrels. Now the idea that there's a right kind of barrels sounded interesting to me because of course barrels are supposed to be a right thing all by themselves. Chapman is in the mid to upper 90th percentiles on all of StatCast's hard hit metrics including barrels. He's 100th percentile on hard hit balls, everything over 95 miles an hour. He's 97th percentile in average exit velocity, 94th percentile in maximum exit velocity, and 98th percentile in barrels per plate appearance, 97th percentile in barrels per batted ball event. So where are the home runs? Well, a few other guys chimed in on Twitter and said it must be just plain bad luck, which is the Occam's razor simplest answer, but I didn't necessarily think so. Why not? I watch a lot of Jays games because my wife and I are fans of the team, and I have a couple of the players here and there on my fantasy teams. I thought I had noticed that a lot of Chapman's home runs seemed to be going to right center field and to right field, and that a lot of the balls he was pulling were scorched line drives, That gave him a lot of hits and a lot of doubles, but not so many home runs. Now I know the plural of anecdote isn't data, so I looked into the story using the stats resources at Baseball HQ, Fangraphs, and Baseball Savant. Chapman's ground line drive fly ball numbers are about the same as last year, and his soft-medium-hard splits also pretty similar although he's had a four-point increase in overall hard-hit percentage this year over last and a corresponding decline in soft-hit percentage. But more hard-hit balls with the same number of fly balls? That should mean more home runs, no? No. Because what I learned was that my anecdotal observations were pretty much on the money. Chapman has indeed not been putting as many pulled barrels into the air. On his hard-hit pulled balls last year, fully 35% were fly balls. By contrast, barely over one-third as many of this year's pulled hard-hit balls have been in the air. What's the payoff? Batting average and non-pull production. Because he is distributing his batted balls more around the field and still hitting a lot of them very hard, his batting average is up substantially, and his home run production away from the pull side is also up, by about 21%, in fact, from 10 home runs per 650 plate appearances to center and right field, up to 13 this season. Matt Chapman's doing something right, and next week I'll talk about why, or maybe how, Chapman has readjusted his game to build a stronger profile. For BaseballHQ.com, I'm Patrick Davitt. I have my extra innings commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio almost every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 23rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 22 of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. Of course, I want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Mike Gianella from Baseball Prospectus and the Flags Fly Forever podcast. Mike is a top-notch fantasy player and analyst, always a great guest here on Baseball HQ Radio, and a guy who writes some excellent long-form puns. You should check him out on Twitter, at Mike Gianella. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch News Analyst was Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ Analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available, and you might see a few long-form puns there, too. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition, featuring a top-notch guest expert, plus all the usual great stuff, our news analysis and our Baseball HQ commentaries. That's next Friday on another Friday full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again on Friday, and for now, so long.
3: Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.